Hello, and welcome back to Enterprise Linux Security, where we're going to talk about being unlucky in Vegas. And I'm joined here with Chow, who hails from the world of tux care, and he deals with security things all the time, and he's here to share his wisdom with us as well, as always. How you doing? All good. It's always a pleasure to be here with you, Jay. And yeah, this week we have our own version of Ocean's 11, not quite 11, maybe 2.0 or something like that. But yeah, it's a, it's a casino heist with a twist. Nobody gets into the casino, there's no bags of money rolling out the door, but there might be some money still changing hands at the end of this story. So there's there's no like zip line from the ceiling kind of thing going yeah. on here where someone just hovering over a thing and, okay, darn it, that would have been more fun, but... <laughs> Sometimes the the stories are not as actually most of the time they're not as exciting in the movies because you know the movies will show hacker or threat actors I should say uh, you know cruising cyberspace with 3D objects all over the place and you know and in real life they're just calling customer service and pretending to be the person that's on the account but you know that's not as exciting but we're going to talk about exactly that in Vegas there was a heist and um, that's going to be the main topic but we have a few things that we're going to get into today. Yeah, that's just the first of our stories. Um, you might have guessed we're talking about the MGM, the MGM problem that happened this week, uh, where most of their systems were taken offline, including the, the casino level stuff like slot machines and even the hotel services, everything was affected. Um, when I first saw that story, and I had to share this, the, the first idea that I had, okay, this is some delayed action from the people at DEF CON or at Black Hat that happened in Vegas just last month, so they left some surprises for the, the hotel people to find. Maybe not, so... Well, <laughs> you never know. We don't know all the, all the pieces of information we can know yet, but we will probably come back to this even after this episode is done. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. MGM actually hasn't come out and said, okay, this is ransomware, this is just the, the best guess at the time given what happened and uh, what's transpiring to the outside world outside of the company and the information that has been gathered around this. The facts around this is that there, nobody was being uh, allowed into the casino to play for a few days, I believe, and, and people had trouble in, in the hotel even to get room service and all of that basic stuff. And then some employees chimed in and said that, yeah, room services are is down, nobody gets access to the, to the information from the customers, we don't have any access to any of the systems that we regularly use to work, we can't access corporate email, we can't even check basic information about the, the hotel the same about the, the casino. So the main thing that happens around cybersecurity incidents that can cause this, actually many can cause this, but one of the, the obvious culprits is usually ransomware. One of the main systems probably got infected, spread to other systems, affected different things around the, the organization. It has also been announced or discovered, or at least it's on the articles that are covering this, that it hasn't just affected the, the MGM at uh, Vegas that exists in Vegas. It's also been it's also hitting other properties from the group. So other casinos they have in Atlantic City and elsewhere in the United States have also had problems in these past few days. Everything probably is tied together. There are no such coincidences at this scale. 
And one of those one of those locations is the MGM Grand Detroit, which is just about an hour and 20 minutes away from here. I think I've actually been there. Well, I think I've been to both, the main location and that. So yeah, it's affecting Detroit, uh, MGM Springfield in Massachusetts, Mississippi, Empire City. Uh, there, there's a number of others, like you were saying. So um, yeah, it looks like they have a network. And if I didn't know any better, I'd say they're 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 networked together, right? <laughs> they're getting in, impacted yeah. all at the same time. So um, it's got to be a really infuriating event for everyone. I mean, just imagine nobody could get into their rooms when they go get a snack or something. And everybody's probably standing in the hallway. The people that work there can't really do anything about it. And um, the IT people have probably canceled all of their vacation plans for the next two months, at least. <laughs> at, at the very least. Um, going back a bit, MGM Resorts faced the cybersecurity incident in 2019. Uh, 30 million of their guests' information was shared on Telegram. Um, that's quite a lot. So it's not their first time around on the cybersecurity uh, target list. So they have been involved in stuff like this. In 2020, they confirmed that they had been the target of a Russia-based hacking group um, in relation to that Telegram uh, information leakage. Um, so yeah, they have been targeted before. And you have been to the facilities. I have never been to a casino of their group or a hotel even. Uh, but um, yeah. so throughout the story, throughout the way that we are going to recount this, my my viewpoint here is has been heavily influenced by movies like Ocean's Eleven and Ocean's Twelve and all of that. So the casinos are this very glamorous place with really high-tech security and really high-tech infrastructure. So it's amazing to see them at the receiving end of something like this. And considering that they had a cybersecurity event in the past, like you mentioned, um, I don't Oh, here's a comment where someone claims to have worked there and is, you know, to put it lightly, because I'm not going to totally read exactly verbatim the person posted, but alleges that they promised to put some money into or invest some money into IT infrastructure and including cybersecurity um, and didn't. Well, we don't know that. They might have invested lots of money into a bad decision that was in interest of security for all we know. But um, it is interesting that someone... Um, gets hit a second time, and then I start to wonder uh, how big does this have to get before the government steps in um, and kind of has some investigations, which I would not be surprised if that happened. But as it is right now, it's, um, you know, information is a little limited, so we're kind of still piecing together what's going on. But what we do know is that a lot of people's lives are made uh, a lot more frustrating lately. There are also another. There is also at least another very interesting comment uh, regarding this story from somebody claiming to be a contractor that works for them, that claims that uh, MGM operates um, air gap networks. So if you have an air gap network and you're still a victim of something like this, there's not many opportunities for that to happen from the outside. It had to be somebody with access to the network. So mm. probably some contractor did something that they shouldn't either intentionally or not, but again, they're not. there's not many ways to jump the air gap, so you need to have physical access to stuff. You need to be inside of the network. Like we've seen in the past, this might have been an insider job. It does have an insider ring to it, doesn't it? Um, in that case, I mean, being air gap, that does 
point the finger in that direction. I'm sure they don't have a bring your own device policy. At least I would hope not. It, somebody getting viruses on their computer and v, you know using a VPN or something. But if it's air gap, that's uh, it, it's pretty. You're right. Yeah, that, that's pretty cut and dry. We'll see how that plays out. But it'll be interesting if that's exactly what happened. And if it's air gapped, it also means that everything is air gapped together because all of the systems are affected. And that means that there's very little, little segregation inside of the network, and that's a problem in and of itself. And if it's ransomware and if they only had some systems being infected and people are asking them to pay so that they can access the systems again, that's one thing. But if an attacker found out that they could actually reach the slot machine software, that would be completely different. Imagine if they triggered the payout on every slot machine on the on the floor. That oh, would wow. make them lose a lot of money really quickly, and that would be even worse for MGM. Okay, let, let's let not give them ideas, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but then again, I'm sure it's still, this is crazy, and this is... And I'm not going to spoil the second story we're going to get to, but it's going to be, you know, related to this because there's some statistics behind some of these things. And it looks like everything is um, going a little into the direction of you either care about cybersecurity or you're going to be out of a job or out of a business if the business closes down. There's a lot of things going on in the world of IT today. For everybody, not just for MGM. And the thing right. is, MGM has a multi-billion dollar budget. They have revenues in the billions every single year for the past I don't know how many years. That's a lot of resources that they have available. That's a lot of money that they can throw at problems, including cybersecurity. So it's obvious that an organization like this has dedicated cybersecurity teams, probably multiple teams, working either together or competing, but multiple cybersecurity teams are in place at multiple locations, and something like this still falls through and still happens. Um, the second story that we're moving into is slightly different. If somebody with the resources that MGM has, with the amount of money that they can throw at problems, either to buy new security solutions, new software, new dedicated equipment, separate networks at the physical level, if they have the resources to pull that off, smaller organizations are even more at risk because while they're subject to exactly the same risks, they are in the same cybersecurity environment, they, are, they can be targeted by exactly the same attackers, they don't have not even remotely close to the amount of, of resources that MGM can put here. So it's no wonder that and this is into a study that was also announced recently. 59% of smaller organizations identified cybersecurity as their biggest challenge. Um, and just a tiny caveat here. The, this study actually considers smaller organizations as any under 2,500 employees. That's not that small in my view. I don't know if you guys in the US consider those as small, but still, an organization with 2,500 people working there, that's not your run-of-the-mill, your corner store that sells your, I don't know, your newspapers or something. Um, yeah, you're, you're not an entrepreneur. That, that's just turning yeah. out at that point. You, you've, have some, you've had some traction there. So, But, but it's interesting that these organizations are, are considering cybersecurity as their biggest challenge. Um, and it goes to show that size here doesn't really matter that much. You're going to struggle with cybersecurity regardless of the, the size of your organization, the size of the teams that you have. So 
I don't know, it, it will end eventually boil down and both of these stories will boil down to what we discussed previously on a past episode where the, the weakest link here is always the, the people. You can have the best solutions, you can have the best processes in place and all of that. If people don't buy into the, the security processes and don't follow the best practices, you're going to have security problems. So do you think the other 41% are lying? Or just not aware of the fact that cybersecurity <laughs> is their biggest challenge? Because I'm kind of wondering, like, like, who doesn't have a challenge with this? And if you don't have a challenge with this, it might just mean that, um, I don't know, maybe you haven't been targeted yet. This is a big problem for everyone. And I, I think these statistics are not surprising to me at all. This is the minimum I would expect it to be. I think the, the trick there might be biggest. So they consider biggest challenge to be cybersecurity. Others might consider it second or third or not at all. And those will probably be in the news soon. But still. Yeah, that, that's true. Because it could be supply chain issues if they're not talking about just IT. I guess if they're talking about just IT, that was what I was thinking. But they might be talking about in general, which would in be general, the, This yeah, is okay. in general. Any type of, of uh, organization, any type of company uh, operating on any industry. But it's still a considerable amount of a considerably large number of, of companies that are struggling with this. We've touched on this in the past, and again, we were talking about this before starting the, the actual recording today. When you're just talking about cybersecurity with other people in the field, with other people who understand cybersecurity, with other sysadmins that might not even be cybersecurity specialists, people that don't have problems in maintaining systems, in deploying them, in managing and dealing with the day-to-day -day activities related to security, you're, you'll be faced with a different picture than if you ask the regular CEO, the regular administrator at the company, the guy that handles computers at your mom and pop store, the guy that handles the email for them or the website or something like that. You're going to be seeing two very different pictures because if you have the experience, if you're used to handling with this, you might downplay some of the risks because you know how to manage them and work around them. If you don't, when you're just faced with the fallout from, say, a ransomware attack and you have to go into crisis mode and try to solve it immediately, that will get you a different mindset around security. I think what we're seeing here on, this, on the result from this study might come from there you might be seeing people who are not that into cybersecurity, again, not IT-related companies, and those are having a hard time struggling with security and dealing with the issues. Yeah, that makes sense. Again, they are faced with exactly the same problems as the others, but they don't have the ability to, re to respond properly. And another thing that I thought about, you know, before we hit the record button is... You know, if you take away the the new companies, right, the the ones that just came out, maybe they have a really awesome sysadmin or sysadmin team that set them up properly with, you know, patched systems and update process, maybe live patching, auto healing, and all these different things we've talked about. That's all well and good. But when you have a company that's existed for a long time, then I feel like we have a legacy issue in a way where... You know, people will criticize Windows sometimes for having legacy code, but it's not easy to create a brand new operating system from scratch. They're going to build it on the foundation they created. Much in the same way when you have an IT team that or a company that has had their 
information systems since like Windows NT4 or earlier, and they keep replacing things and building and swapping things around and implementing this software, removing that software, going to a different one. And eventually the people leave that were there to create the network and you have a whole new team of people that are trying to understand what previous people did because documentation is an issue. Next thing you know, you have people trying to maintain this unmaintainable spaghetti mess of servers that are just patched together in just the right way. And it's not that sysadmins are doing this on purpose. It's just that they're spread very thin. And, you know, that's, I think a lot of sysadmins will have experienced when you start a new job and you have to learn everything about the company, the past, the present, how it was built, what the weaknesses are. And that's a big part of the job. But then if you have uh, systems that have existed for so long, I think they're just going to get weaker and weaker and weaker. But at the same time, it's super expensive to purge everything and then start new. And most companies really can't do that because they have operations to keep going. I've personally seen that at a few locations in the past. You start deploying systems today and you deploy the systems that you need right now. And then next year, business needs change and you add new systems with new operating systems, with new versions, with new integrations, and repeat the year after that and all of that. And after a few years, you have this gross by accretion of these many disparate things that cannot be managed in an automated way because they're all different at some level. Either the operating system or the application stack or everything is different. So it becomes harder to maintain that than to say a company that right now deploys a thousand servers all with the same operating system, all with the same version, that's automatable. You can run scripts on all of them at the same time. So the workload in maintaining the old stuff that just keeps growing is much higher than the one that you need to maintain lots of, of similar systems right now. But and, and this is visible in organizations that you would assume would be very careful. Stuff like banking, for example. Many banking institutions and many financial institutions, they still run systems that were running 30 years ago, 40 years ago. The old IBM mainframes that are very reliable, that, uh, that you need to know COBOL and you need to know other stuff to, to be able to just interact with them. Those are still running in some places. Simply, actually for two reasons. First, because <laughs> it's security through, <laughs> through old age, basically. They're so old that people don't know how to attack it. Basically, <laughs> you yeah. don't have some of the much. threat actors weren't even alive when OS yeah. two was the main operating system, and a lot of banks run OS two. At least that's what I've heard. And or even before like, what that. is that? <laughs> yeah, before or that. Or even too, before was... that, the old AS systems. <laughs> yep. Those guys feel like half a room, and you need a specialist chair and something like that, and the specialist workstation that's tied into a special port in the machine. Those stuff is that stuff is different is difficult to attack not because it's specially secure or not but people don't know it enough to attack it um, right but those guys they survive a bomb attack so the ones that were deployed forty years ago thirty years ago they can still be running nicely today you need a forklift to move the, to move them if you want to. Um, yeah, now they're practically disposable, at least, well, not really, because we should be throwing away technology, but it, it comes to a point where nobody fixes anything anymore, and you used to have to, you know, put some elbow grease into these servers to keep them going, and people would, because buying a new one was just unthinkable. But they still hold important data, and that's always the, the critical thing. 
they still hold transaction information or customer information or something like that that was never migrated. The customers might already be dead, but they're not never being cleaned out of the system. And they have to keep those records. So they just keep the system running. And you can still see that today. It's a, it's a running joke, but it's actually something that you see in the field. They only deploy a new Linux version on a, on a server in banking. After Retenders extended support, that's after five years after it was launched. So, yeah, this, the new stuff that you're deploying on your systems is already five years old by the time you, you deploy it. They basically don't want any breaking changes on updates, so they just want to receive security updates, and at that point is when they get that. So, five-year-old Linux, that's what's coming new on their systems. Um, yeah. But again, you would assume something like the MGM casino would have a security team that would know how to handle this. The resources are there, ever the best practices are there, and again, air quotes on the best practices. Um, and they still are hit by something like this. So it's no wonder that smaller organizations are being threatened by cybersecurity and they feel that network attacks, ransomware, and software vulnerability exploits are their biggest concerns. Because, yeah, those are the biggest concerns for everybody, not just smaller companies. If anything, this study shows that it really doesn't matter the size of the organization. As long as you have systems online, as long as you're in some way online, if you're doing business, if you're just checking your emails, if you have any presence online at all, you're going to be at risk with exactly the same threat profile that larger organizations have. You just have less resources. It's funny how it, it always seems to be like, well, I can't believe insert name of company here is a victim. You know, I've said that many times and, you know, we were saying that now we would, of course, think MGM would have more. But at the same time, it seems like a very common thing to say that, that oh, I can't believe that company had that happen. Oh, I can't believe that company had it happen. And it happens to the best of them. And I think that's something people have to realize, too, because um, unless you have a company that's targeted over and over and over and over again, you kind of expect it because it's, it's just a running joke at this point and every threat actor and their brother is probably going to go and try the same thing at that point. They have a bullseye on their back, but when you don't have that situation, it, it sometimes it really is surprising how um, lacking the security is at some of these locations and some of these businesses. And I've seen firsthand when I'm auditing a company myself and the first thing I think is that they're doing a really great job. They have, you know, Lateral movement is really hard to do and, you know, they're more secure than most. But then I find a password that's just like six characters long for the admin. And it's like, you know, they go so far, but that one little thing is what's going to get them. And that I just really can't wait to find out what happened to MGM so we could, you know, have a um, discussion about what we've learned when we do learn more, assuming we do learn more. I think it'd be interesting to see how that happened and also how it ties into this report. Because like you said, it's not just the small companies, it's a problem for everyone. Yeah. And somebody brought this up on the on chat. Uh, the security just to tick a box is not really secure. And it really isn't. Security for compliance sake is not actual security. If you're just patching your... <laughs> and again, I've said this before. I've, I actually make this point in some presentations and some texts that I've written before. If you're patching a system, and in this case I'm just focusing on patching to close security holes, if you're patching a system just to meet your security compliance requirements, you're not secure at all. Security frame, compliance frameworks 
are not adjusted as fast as the threat profile evolves. We're still facing security compliance requirements that say, okay, you need to patch your systems within 30 days of a patch being available. 30 days. We're seeing exploits coming out within minutes of, an of a vulnerability being disclosed. And the compliance says that if you patch within 30 days, everything is fine. You can tick the box and you're perfectly fine meeting the compliance requirements. Those are 30 days that you're handing out to the hackers just to help them do their job better. You don't need to help them. They don't need right. your help to hack your systems. They have an easier enough job as it is already, as we're seeing. Um, indeed, yeah, that's just, yeah. Security for compliance sake, just to tick those boxes, just to make sure that the report looks nice. That's not security. You are fooling yourself and you're probably fooling your board and your auditors if you're just showing them all the checkboxes ticked, but you're actually not doing it as soon as possible. And there are many reasons for that. Again, not this isn't a criticism of the people actually doing the, the patching and doing the maintenance operation with all of that. I know there are constraints around this. You can't just willy-nilly take down systems to deploy patches. See also live patching and how that can be avoided. But I know there are constraints around this. I know how difficult it is for sometimes get approval to take down systems so that you can patch them, when, even when you know there are vulnerabilities in them. And it can be really tricky to get the business decisions to align with what you need as a security expert, as a sysadmin, as a cybersecurity professional. It's really tricky to get everything aligned properly. That said, when it takes 30 days or close to 30 days to obtain that authorization, to obtain that, there is also something broken in your decision process that is interfering with the security of your systems. And that is a self-inflicted wound. That is something that should be improved within your, your organization and would by itself improve your overall security profile. Do you ever feel like there's a possibility that a certification, let's say SOC 2 or something, could be used for open source intelligence? Meaning you have a company that just passed SOC 2 or just renewed it or something like that. Like a threat actor, I would think, could just look at the requirements for SOC 2 to know what they passed, to know what not to try, and then try all the other stuff. Because just like we were talking before the um, podcast, you had mentioned something that happened a very long time ago that, you know, seems obvious, but is wasn't apparently, but it seems like an obvious attack vector. And I don't think that one was on a certification checklist. No, that wasn't it. There's always some surprising new way that attackers find to, to exploit systems, right? So the, the story that you're alluding to, we've mentioned in the past different attack vectors that you can use against the supply chain, and I mean the software supply chain. Uh, which, again, a software supply chain attack is something that attacks the way that the software is created. Okay, so that when you get the software, it's already infected. It's not something that gets through the system while it's running. It's something that you deploy in the system with your application. In 2020, there was this report that GitHub put out about uh, some problems that they found on some repositories that were hosted at GitHub. And they found that there was malware there. And that malware had this, it was called the Octopus Scanner. If you want to look that up, Octopus Scanner is the name of the malware. And the interesting thing about that malware was that when you use the software from the repositories that were infected, 
on GitHub. You pulled it, you compiled it, you deployed the, the, the application that came out of that. What the malware did was look in your system to see if you had NetBeans installed. NetBeans is a Java deployment um, environment. Um, so they were specifically targeting Java developers because those are the ones most likely to have NetBeans deployed. And if it found NetBeans, it would insert itself into the build process so that any other project that was built with NetBeans would have um, Octopus Scanner deployed within. So the supply chain attack there was two-pronged. And this is, again, after you hear the description, okay, that's amazing. And it really is, but it's also unexpected and you don't really defend against something like that because you don't conceive of that type of attack. So, yeah, you're faced with new threats and the threats evolve all the time and they come out from places where you're not expecting it. By the way, if you didn't have NetBeans in your system, it would do absolutely nothing else. That was its own target. It, the only thing that it would go after was NetBeans. And it's impossible to cover all your bases. That's just basic. If anybody promises you a magic bullet solution for security, it doesn't exist. They're just either deluding themselves or yourself or trying to at least. But the way that this type of things evolves is in nowhere, no way near as fast, or sorry, as slow as the way that compliance requirements evolves. Compliance requirements will never make allowances for this. There's no way that you can fit something like this into a compliance framework. What are you going to require? That nobody has NetBeans installed? That everybody <laughs> checks their build artifacts before deploying them every single time? Yeah, they should, but you can't force that through a compliance checklist. That's either an enforceable or uncheckable, so yeah. Yeah, because you could have Visual Studio or some other exactly. you know, system, and it's like like you were saying, is a certifi certif blah, certification framework going to have checks for Visual Studio, for NetBeans, and for all these other ones? And and you're right, but even if they didn't, the issue is, you know, here we have the, the actually the issue pretty much always is you have threat actors that are ahead of all this because they're thinking outside the box. And these certification programs are always stuck inside the box, trying to fix everything in the box, while the people that are you know, doing these kinds of things, they don't even consider the box. They don't even acknowledge the box at all. They don't even probably think it exists because they're always thinking of something else. So here we have a situation where people are getting certified. You know, they're doing regular audits. There's regular password changes. There's patching in 30 days. And then someone just figures out how to infect their build environment. And then it just, uh, you know, the, the, all that stuff just doesn't even matter anymore. But you, you know what they say about Java, right? You write once and exploit everywhere. That's kind of, <laughs> okay. I just had to throw that in there. <laughs> That's not an actual slogan, but that was, a, that, I, I think it was Steve Gibson on Security Now. I heard say that first. Another problem with, um, with security frameworks and the compliance frameworks and all of that is that they're built by, in the, by the industry itself. And then it's used to regulate the industry itself. So the industry has no special interest in actually making them too stringent because then they would have to invest more into meeting those requirements. Why would I contribute to a framework that would then impose an, a financial burden on my operations? Why would I have to, to come to deploy patches within five days if that interrupted my business activities when I can do it in 30 and still say that I'm certified? And there's no interest there because it's not 
pushed from the outside in, it's made by the industry itself, or at least has a big contribution from the industry itself. And this isn't just financial. This is, <laughs> this is, uh, this applies to all of these types of compliance frameworks across all the industries because they all do this. They all contribute it either through lobbying, or through directly writing the drafts for the the frameworks, or to contributing the legislation wholesale so that it just gets approved. That's how it gets done. And then we see that it has a large disconnect from reality, from the actual risks out there. No kidding. Of course it has. And of course it doesn't really help you protect and achieve security. And tying this all back together, of course there's legislation forcing MGM casinos to have proper security in place. They're handling not just their money, but the bet's money, which is not even theirs yet. It's their customers until they lose it. So they better have some good security checks in place and good security measures in place and all of that. But even those measures were bypassed by something like this. Somebody was jokingly mentioning that, yeah, but MGM wasn't the best target. Right now in Vegas, they have this giant sphere that's just one massive screen. Imagine if somebody ransoms that. That would be amazing. And somebody ransomwares the server controlling that and displaying just their animations. That would be really, really nice. Yeah, I'm sure that'll something like that will happen during the life of this podcast. I can almost guarantee it. But, you know, here's some advice for MGM. Um, at the next Black Hat, bring a cell phone, okay? Make sure Wi-Fi is enabled and just Bluetooth. see what happens. <laughs> it, exactly. And whoever breaks in, offer them a job. Like, just find a, a whole team of people that hack that phone and say, you get a job, you get a job, you get a job, come work here, and you'll have people. It definitely would be better because then you have people that are thinking outside the box, and that's what you need. I'm not saying their internal team isn't good or anything. I don't happen to know them, but at the same time, you, I think thinking outside the box like the threat actors is the only way anyone has a snowball's chance in heck of actually being reasonably secure because, you know, they're looking for ways to um, break in. And I, I keep bringing this up, but it's hilarious, the whole grub password thing where you just keep mashing enter over and over again and eventually bypasses the password field. I mean, these are the types of people that are doing this. That's the way they think. They try weird stuff and, until they find something that works. And then when they do, they use it. So like we were saying, the certification framework or whatever, if you're SOC 2 or one of the others, that's good, but it doesn't it doesn't really, you know, prove anything about your security other than you've checked some boxes. And those are probably some of the things that some of the threat actors will avoid even trying if they know you're certified in the first place. The certifications are Sorry, just checking if the microphone was on. Um, the certifications are very overrated in all, across all industries. When you're showing that you're certified for SOC 2 or for PCI or something, it doesn't matter which. When you're showing that, you're using that, say, as a leveraging chip or something when you're trying to get a deal through. Hey, see, you should have a deal with us because we're certified, we meet all of these requirements and all of that. It shouldn't be looked at that way. It should be looked at as the bare minimum that you're meeting. Okay, you're doing that? Yeah, great. What are you doing in addition to that to actually be secure? You, you're you actually patching, okay? And that's great. You're patching your systems, but you're still taking a lot of time. What are you doing to actually reduce that risk window? Because again, those 30 days, 
it used to be like, I don't know, six months or something like that. But that was like 20 years ago. So within 20 years ago, do you think the threat level only increased from six months to 30 days? Of course not. It has increased much more than that. Exploits are coming out even faster today. ChatGPT has received an update recently where it takes in inputs that are much, much larger than before. You can now feed it entire code files and it will find the bugs there for you. It will even write the code to exploit those bugs. Oh, wow, that's previously, pretty Yeah, previously you had to feed it like function to function or a bunch of functions at the time, not just throw the entire code base at it and it will happily tell you, okay, this is the problem, this is how you trick it, this is how you get an exploit from there. And it will provide you with neatly usable code. This makes the exploits happen much, much faster than before. Have you seen any movement in the compliance side to address this? Not at all. It, you might come out with a new draft, say, in a couple of years when everything has changed again and it would already be outdated by the time it comes out. So looking at compliance as the badge of honor, it shouldn't really be that way. It should be, okay, you're doing the absolute minimum. What else are you doing? Exactly. It's. I feel like the issue is a little bit bigger because what I've noticed while working in corporate IT is the obsession with shifting liability. Everything is about shifting liability. You could have a team of system administrators that are really, really good, and they don't even need any help from anyone, but they'll still be support contracts. So if any of them make a mistake, they'll point a finger at the support company. Well, they didn't give us the best support that we could have had, even if an internal person made a mistake. They always have liability to shift. So if you have SOC 2, well, we, we've done everything we're supposed to do. Here's proof of that. We're SOC 2 certified, taking liability off of them. And, you know, everything seems to be like that because with SOC 2, uh, you know, you have another company like an MSP that's going to use the company's services and they only use the services of companies that are SOC 2 certified. It doesn't mean they're secure, but if there's an issue, well, we only chose companies that are certified. So it's not our fault that, that something failed. It's all about the liability. And I think that's um, we need to just really not necessarily take ownership in, you know, where we're cracking the whip at our own people, but at least get somebody on the inside that thinks outside of the box to cover the things that are not in the certification because just like you said, this is going to move faster and faster and faster and uh, that's going to make those certifications less relevant over time, I would think. Well, honestly, I would think that says more about the way that the company chooses to do business than the, the actual risk and all of that. Because you can do that. You can just try and shift the blame somewhere else when something bad happens. Or you can work to avoid something bad happening in the first place. One takes more effort than the other. One is more difficult to achieve than the other. But at the end of the day, you might be delivering a better service if you do one over the other. Um, again, depends on your view of business, of how scummy you want to do business or to be doing business or not. It's kind of the, the things you learn while you're working in a corporate IT. You know, they the companies I've worked for, they've, they've always tried their best, but there is that liability shift, and some of them will just flat out admit it, which is always interesting, especially if you work in management. But I do agree. It's being proactive rather than reactive. You, I mean, it, you in IT, you could be in a reactive situation regardless of how well you do, but you got to put more attention in the preventative things 
because any one of those things might have been used against you if you didn't do it. Yeah. And I sincerely hope that this week we'll know more about the, the MGM hack and how much ransom is being asked because, again, this is probably the best way to reenact an Ocean's Eleven movie. You don't need to get into the casino. Nobody needs to come in guns blazing. There's no money bags being thrown around. You just sit at home, hack their network, ransom some systems, and then wait for the money to drop into your Bitcoin wallet. That's much easier to do. Yep, and yeah, absolutely. So this will be an interesting story, one of the several stories I think we're following <laughs> at this point, looking for updates on. So uh, I, we'll be I back actually, with news when we have some news. Sorry, uh, sorry to interrupt you. I actually have some more news around the lapses story. Uh, oh, yeah? We've covered lapses before. Those are the guys that uh, were allegedly behind the NVIDIA breach that stole oh, the yeah. firmware and all of that, and the Microsoft breach, and the GTA, the Rockstar hack. These guys apparently were behind it. So it turns out that Lapsus was just two teenagers who knew too much about computers. Funny of thing, course. one of the teenagers was already under, not house arrest because he was in, an, in a hotel room and he did the, the Rockstar hack through, a, <laughs> and I kid you not, through a, um, an Amazon Fire Stick plugged into the hotel um, um, TV and that's how he went ahead and got to, to a rock star to steal the GTA code. I kid you not, this was in the report. So, wow. yeah, those guys were caught, the two teenagers were caught, we'll know if they get any jail time or something like that, but they were underage at the time. And that's how they got around and doing all those amazing hacking skills and amazing hacking operations that we see in the movies. Not really. It was just some board teens. So they had to do a MAC address spoofing on their laptop to get through the um, the uh, captive portal at the hotel to even get that far. So I know how it started, at least, because <laughs> I know how hard it is to get a you know fire stick or a Roku working in a hotel room when you can't answer the uh, captive portal. But that wasn't a challenge for them. They not only got that thing registered on the network, but they took it a lot further. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. So that was an update on that story. Um, yeah, that's our episode for today. Thank you very much for joining. The, again, the MGM hack was just the, the trigger for the rest of our comments real, related to security. Thank you very much for sticking around with us. It was a pleasure as always, and until the next one. See you next time.